Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, the Phoenix Tube Company, the law firm of Declator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and General Needs Charity, serving our homeless veterans with dignity. And now, here are your hosts, Mark and A.J. Joining us now is a former first-round draft pick of the Cincinnati Reds in the 1994 draft. During his 19-year career, he also played for the Tigers, Astros, Mets, Yankees, Texas Rangers, Atlanta Braves, and Washington Nationals. Additionally, he spent four years pitching in Japan and South Korea. 2012, he played the role of the Philadelphia Phillies pitcher Dutch Leonard in the Warner Brothers picture film 42, which I can't believe is that long ago because that's we had him on when we talked about that film. Uh, chronicled the life of Jackie Robinson. Since retiring in early 2013, he has worked as a studio analyst, writer, and in-game color analyst for Fox Sports, MajorLeagueBaseball.com, Major League Baseball Network, ESPN.com, Baseball Prospectus, SB Nation, Sports Illustrated, the Associated Press, CBS Sports Network, and the New York Yankees Radio Network. He is the zealot of sports baseball for Sure. It is a pleasure to welcome CJ Nitkowski to back to Sports Talk New York. Welcome, CJ. Appreciate it, Mark. And you missed, of all things, my current job as an analyst for the Texas. I Rangers. was going to get to that because it's a trade today. We'll get to that. I'm just talking to <laughs> A little <I'm> foreshadowing. <laughs> so, all right, so let's get right into this winter trade meetings, uh, which were a lot more like the 80s and 90s. After back to back years of nothing happening and the top players just hanging on the market, free agents Cole, $324 million with the Yanks, Strasburg, $245 million, re upping with the Nationals, Rendon, $245 million with the Angels. They've already cashed in this winter. Why do you think there was such a change in the way the ownership approached these meetings as opposed to the last two years where it was crickets? More players in the market. I mean, it was such a great year to be a free agent and to be a top-end guy because even though the Red Sox and the Cubs, which are two of our bigger markets, really aren't participating in free agency at the big levels, uh, a lot of other teams are. It's always helpful when the Yankees are in. Even if there's whisperings with the Mets, that's really helpful. The Dodgers, you know, the Dodgers, when they were bought by Guggenheim, everyone kind of expected just a ton of money to get thrown at that team, and it really hasn't happened. There haven't been big free agent expenditures with the Dodgers, but it sounds like they were kind of ready and they were have been in and continue to be in conversations of potential free agents. The Rangers, who have kind of sat back the last couple of years but have spent in the past, are ready to spend again, and they've kind of put their hat in the ring and made a run at Anthony Rendon and made a run at Zach Wheeler. The Chicago White Sox have had a really difficult time the last couple of years trying to give away their money, right? They were in on Manny Machado. It sounds like they had the biggest offer for Zach Wheeler. Uh, the Nationals are always out there spending. The Braves have money, and they're ready to spend. You know, it, it, it's frustrating when you're a fan of a team that's going through a rebuild because it's just, you know, it's crickets. It's dead quiet. There's not a lot going on. Uh, but even a couple of those teams are starting to come out of their shell um, a little bit, so we don't see it as much. And so the timing of this whole thing for this free, these free agents has just been uh, fantastic. When you can have multiple uh, bidders in on your services from big markets, man, you're going to do well. With that being said, you know J.D. Martinez didn't opt out and didn't opt out of his contract with the Red Sox because he knew there was not going to be multiple suitors for his services. And so the idea that it is a great market for everybody, but it wasn't necessarily for every position, uh, depending on who you are, and uh, he was the guy that was not going to be able to match uh, his current contract. But the other guys, they're doing really well. To me, one of the surprises of this whole season is that Scott Boris's game plan always been to have his guys sign last. <laughs> his guys are signing first this year. What do you think prompted the change in his game plan, not to wait for everybody else to come in so he can squeeze every last dollar out and have the mystery teams come in? 
Yeah, you know, I tell you what, I think first of all, because a lot of teams were pretty vocal, we knew they were going to be in, so there weren't going to be as many surprises. And he had so many pieces to work with. I mean, he played it beautifully. I mean, just the idea of making sure that he got Strasburg done first and that the Rangers, the Angels, the Dodgers, and the Yankees were still available on Cole. And we didn't even bring up the Padres. The Padres have spent the last couple of years, and they'd be willing to spend. But I think it's a matter of because he's had so many guys, because he knew teams uh, were really interested and were willing to put that best foot forward early on, um, they got aggressive early. And especially, I think, that the national signing, Steven Strasburg first, was a big one for Garrett Cole. You know, and he originally said, Garrett Cole, that he was going to probably wait until January to sign. We'd heard that, at least at the beginning, of the offseason, but there's no re- there's no reason to wait. I mean, I know that waiting game has happened a bunch, but it's not fun. I mean, it's not fun for players to sit around. It's not fun to, to get into January or even near the beginning of spring training, and even though you know you're going to get a contract somewhere, to not get it done, it's, you know, it's, it's an unsettling feeling. And so it's better for the game. I don't know if Rob Banford said anything about it, um, but it's certainly better for our fans. This has been a much better offseason um, than years past, just having a much better idea of kind of where teams are going, what they're doing. You can have your fan fest and, you know, the idea that Mike Moustakis was at the Red fan fest that they had already. Um, that matters. And so I think that uh, teams and, and agents getting together and trying to make it happen or a little bit earlier is, is nothing but good for the game. Interesting you mentioned Boris, AJ, because if you're looking at this guy's going to have a, a billion-dollar winter because, he, yeah. you know, Moustakis is also his. He, he still has Keiko, Ryu, and, and Castellanos in play as well and on top of the 824 believe, yeah. Yeah, he, he that he signed. He can take a nice vacation. Yeah, I, I think yeah. he's uh, he's sipping margaritas someplace. All right, so let's get to the two pitches, Cole and Strasburg, huge paydays and terms. That That's the other thing, extended terms for pitches. So it, we go on and on about analytics and, and cost value. So if you de- – really deep, take a deep dive into the numbers, you'd find to this point in his career, some of the pitches that Cole is most similar to, Clory Kluber, Brandon Webb, Steven Strasburg, Lance Lynn, Teddy Higuera, Carlos Carrasco, and Tanaka. Nice pitches for sure, but adding Cole for me doesn't make the Yankees the instant 2020 world champs. A lot can happen to pitchers over the course of that contract. For me, I almost think that the Yankees spent that money so they don't have to face him three times in a series to get to the World Series. Do you think that money was spent wisely by the Yankees? And you take a look at how you know the Rangers were able to get Kluber, who is a very similar pitcher, with, with not giving up a tremendous amount of assets. Why do you think the Yankees went all in on Cole, and he, is he the right guy for that amount of money in that term? Yeah, I mean, the money is obviously the biggest that we've ever seen, and whether or not it actually work out, works out really depends on health. He can't win a World Series by himself, uh, but he certainly is an X factor, and he can go up against anybody's ace you know, in game one and game five or game four if you need him to. Um, I think that's part of the reason, right? And the Yankees also have the issue of you know potential free agents in Tanaka, uh, Paxton, and, and we'll see what happens with Jay Happ. He's got a vesting option, so their rotation could get really thin really fast. Now, they could have went out and got guys on shorter-term deals, and they could have went Dallas Keuchel or maybe even Zach Wheeler. But, again, it goes back to matching up in game one, and do they really have that guy, and they didn't. I mean, Tanaka could be that guy, and he has been that guy at times, but he's not Garrett Cole. I think when you start to look at the comparisons, kind of based on what you're talking about, I think the thing with Garrett Cole you got to remember is that he's only been this guy for two years. Right. Like when he was in Pittsburgh, he was good, but he was a guy that you looked at, almost kind of like Wheeler. And said, man, there's more in there. Isn't there more in there? Like, could we get a little more out of him? Like, you know, especially if you're the number one overall pick, you look at him and say, man, you know, this guy's good, but he's not great. And can he be great? And the Astros figured out a way to get that out of him, right? There was an adjustment in repertoire and how you use your pitches. And a lot of people are wondering, can Wheeler make that same uh, kind of jump with the Phillies? We'll see. 
but they're banking on the guy that, that's been the last two years. And so the, if you were to take the last two years and try to compare, he really doesn't have an equal. I mean, Justin Verlander's probably pretty close to him, but he's also way younger. And so we'll see. I mean, it's, that's obviously a huge risk. But it's interesting when you go back and you track. Like, I think we feel better about position player contracts when we go yeah. big, right, because of health and things like that. But if you look at some of the biggest contracts and then look at the pitchers and how successful their teams have been, especially when you're talking about collecting rings, the pitchers have been much better than the position players. It's kind of a fascinating experiment when you go down the line with guys like David Price and others uh, compared to um, some of those position players and those that have, have not won rings yet, despite the fact that they've had some of the biggest contracts. So if you use the Sabathia contract as the template, mm-hmm. How many years do the Yankees have to get out of Cole to basically make up what the back end is likely to be? Yeah, right. So we look at Sabathia. I think a lot of people say it was a pretty successful contract. Yeah. But there was, this, there was a stretch in there. I remember my first year at MLB.com in 13 and just trying to be objective. I said, you know, CC's probably like a three or a four now. And I was working with Pete McCarthy. He looked at me sideways. He's like, what? I was like, but that's who he is right now. And we've got to be honest. Now, he came out of that, right? He went through that little bit of lull there. Uh, near the end of the contract, got it back together at the very end. Um, and so he kind of, you know, he redeemed himself by kind of reinventing himself a little bit and to the fact where the Yankees even brought him back after the contract, which is pretty amazing. I don't know if we'll see that necessarily um, with Garrett Cole, but the ring always helps, right? A championship in there, uh, but health is the big one, right? He can be healthy, um, you know, if he's going to be healthy for the whole thing, who knows? That sounds like that's asking a lot, but, you know, if he's healthy for a bulk of it, and he only has a couple of years in there where he doesn't make 30 starts, um, you know, like Mike Messina, right, health for the most part throughout his tenure with the Yankees, but they didn't win a World Series uh, when he was there, so that's a little bit frustrating. Um, but I'd say it was still a pretty successful uh, contract for a guy like him. But fans want the ring. That's all that matters the most. And what will be really interesting to me is if you go back to his last year, if he was to have his 2019 in New York, I think it would be fun to track because, you know, he had a four in April, he had over a four in May, and they didn't lose the game the rest of the year. But you saw how Yankee fans treated Stanton when he first got there, right? Slow start, he wore it. I mean, he had a good year, man. He hit 38 home runs and had 100 RBIs. You would have thought he was terrible right. by the treatment that he got. So it would be interesting to see if, you know, I don't know, Garrett Cole's not necessarily a notoriously slow starter, but he got up to a slow start last year and then just dominated um, the rest of the way. But time will tell. It's unfortunate. We can't predict. But I think health will be the big one on whether or not we believe this contract will be successful. So, so let's stay on those comps, and especially now let's bring in your Texas Ranger hat. Um, we talked the comps for Cole to Kluber and Lynn, both members now of the Texas Rangers starting rotation. Uh, they add that to Mike Miner and Kyle Gibson that they picked up. Not a bad rotation, but is it? does that give them enough now, pitching-wise, to be able to compete with the Astros, who we really don't know what they're going to look like this year, and the A's and the improved Angels? You know, Can Texas be a player in that division this year? Or if not, what do they need to be a player? Well, I think their pitching actually matches up pretty well. If Corey Kluber is healthy, right, that's a big one. Um, of course, he missed time last year after getting hit with the line drive, and it looked like he was going to come back late August. He ended up tweaking an oblique and ended up just missing um, the rest of the season. But the good version, the healthy version of Corey Kluber is pretty special. We saw it in the 2016 run right when they had that lead, 3-1 uh, to one in the World Series, but just what he did, three games to one, but what he did throughout that postseason um, was pretty special. And I tell people all the time, when I look at that point of his career, I mean, he was an absolute warrior, similar to what CC Sabathia did for the Milwaukee Brewers and, you know, pitching on three days rest, but they did it much later 
uh, into the postseason. And I thought, man, this guy is going to be dragging the next year. And he went out and he won the Cy Young Award the next season. I mean, this guy is an absolute stud. I was getting older, and of course, you want to be a little bit more careful. But he is the kind of guy when he's healthy that he can go toe to toe with Justin Verlander. And so the idea that you can slide Mike Miner down a spot who was been really good in his two years in Texas, Lancelin was amazing last year. Um, I think kind of caught a lot of people by surprise using a lot of fastballs, which the game has gotten away from. He's kind of a throwback in that regard, and he gets you deep in the game or at least throws you a lot of pitches. Um, so they're pretty deep right now. Kyle Gibson's a good bounce-back candidate. You know, he wasn't quite himself last year. Um, he's dealing with some issues um, with the uh, with the IBS that he had, and he was just kind of, uh, you know, out of gas early. But he thinks he's got all that behind him. So to put him in a four spot um, is really nice. And, you know, the Astros do have some question marks outside of, uh, Verlander and Granke, McCullers Jr. will be back. Uh, we'll see what they do. Or Keedy actually made a nice name for himself in the postseason. So they got some arms. They got a really good lineup. So when you're talking about what the Rangers have to do going forward, or if they're going to do anything else, they could fill a spot at third, center field, first base, maybe catcher. And there's, there's some spots there that they probably would like to upgrade. Third base, I think, will still be the focus. We'll see. They do have a pretty good hitter in Nick Solak who's more of a second baseman and a third baseman, but if they can't get an upgrade, he'll be the guy and he'll certainly swing it pretty well. So they got some, they got some things that um, they would probably still like to accomplish this offseason. It's good that they were in on Rendon. It's good that they were in on Wheeler. I think it gets the fan base excited to add Corey Kluber now to fill out the rotation, going to a new ballpark next year. Um, you know, it's coming here. They're getting it together, and uh, things will be looking pretty good here for the Rangers. We're talking with C.J. Nitkowski. People, including Met fans, have been critical of the Mets' moves. I, for one, love what Brody's done this offseason thus far. They were never going to be in on the big names for the pitchers, you know, and they lost Wheeler to a division rival. Surely that hurt. But they took care of that, in my opinion, hedging that bet last year by getting Stroman ahead of time. They add Porcello and Walker to add depth to what really was one of baseball's top rotations to begin with. Now it allows them to leave Lugo in the pen. What are your thoughts on what the Mets did? And, you know, AJ's concerned also about Waka because he feels now, you know, Waka came here to be a starter. He says he doesn't want to go to the pen. Now you're at Porcello. What does that do? Yeah, so I think, first of all, that situation for Michael Waka is a bounce back candidate, right? So he has to have a good spring training. He's got to prove himself. There's not a lot risk. I think it was, what, a $3 million contract, so not a huge risk here. Um, for the Mets, they're probably not expecting him to make 32 starts anyway. I wouldn't think. I mean, they'd like it, but I don't think that's what the you know the anticipation is. And you just never know. But having six uh, big league starters, it's where you want to be, man. It's a good problem to have if one guy ends up getting bumped to the pen um, early on, even if that guy's a little bit unhappy. So they did a really nice job um, filling out that rotation and, like like you said, leaving Google and Gesellman into the bullpen. Right, that's the big one. And I know they got some maybe a couple of question marks. Um, you know, throughout their um, the defense and, and their lineup, there's a couple there. But the big one for me is what I keep saying all off season. Um, first of all, yes, keeping those guys there helps. I'd love to see them still go out and add a guy, maybe like a Will Harris or bring back Joe Smith, that kind of arm to add to your bullpen because this team cannot afford um, to have the seasons from Julius Smith and, and Diaz and Edwin Diaz. I mean, I just I can't see a scenario in which they win without those guys contributing. Right? They need to get those guys back on track. They need to get Robinson Cano, and I don't know how much more they'll get out of him, but they need him healthy. Uh, they need him producing, and a lot of what the Mets um, need to do comes from within, even though they've added from the outside. So I think that ultimately dictates you know, how their season goes, unless it's somebody else that steps up or another signing, whatever it may be. I know Josh Hader's name is out there as a, as a possible trade candidate, um, and it sounds like maybe the Yankees are interested in well. I mean, listen, all teams will be interested, but that could actually match up pretty well um, with the Brewers. So, 
for them, it's about that bullpen. And I know they can still add at center field and what do you want to do with this whole Cespedes situation and, you know, even at third. But I think it's it's the bullpen and it's Diaz and Familia. They've, they've made big investments there, one via trade, one via free agent dollars. And uh, it's just going to be really important that Carlos Beltran and his staff can identify what went wrong last year uh, and get those guys back on track. So let, let's talk about Diaz for a second then. Hmm. It, they keep on coming out, you know, Brody, the Mets say, well, if you look at his numbers, they really weren't that bad. His strikeout numbers were, were really good. He just gave up a lot of home runs, which is other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? What do you think they can, they should do to try and get Diaz back on track? Or is it just like, you know, Ed Whitson disease, he can't pitch in New York? Yeah, I don't think it's that. I mean, I, I watched this guy in Seattle uh, quite a bit, watched him come through, and I thought, man, this, this guy's unbelievable. And I remember when they first put him in the closer role, he's somewhat like Familia, right? He came through the minor league system as a starter. actually played with Familia at the very end of my career in the minor leagues with the Mets, saw how special he could be. Uh, but when they brought him up and put him in the bullpen, I remember thinking, man, don't make him a closer. You know, Make him a guy that you could treat like Batances, right, that you could use 75 times, have 80 innings. You can use him when you're down by a couple, up by more than just three. Uh, but he slid into that closer role, which brings, you know, a little bit of extra added pressure. I don't know if it's New York for him. You never know with a guy. They're, they can be tough reads. They can always say the right thing. Um, I didn't watch him enough to sit there and really, like, break down what I saw or what was different. Uh, but it could hopefully for Mets fans, it was just, you know, let me get this year out of my way. Things weren't going right. Probably a few bad breaks in there as well. But it is encouraging that the swing and miss rate um, was still really good. And then, they, listen, that's the right thing for him to say. I know it's a tough market. You're going to get criticized for everything. Um, but I want my general manager and I want my manager spinning it positive because I don't want anything negative getting back to my players. i got enough things to fight on their own, their own demons that they don't need. And then fans. They don't need the general manager. They don't need the field manager publicly criticizing them. I know, I know Terry Collins would do it once in a while, and fans kind of liked it. Um, but I think at this day and age where we care about what, how people feel probably more than ever, and especially professional athletes, um, spin it positive, even though you know that they probably got to dig in and, and find out exactly what went wrong. You, you could answer this better than anyone, all right? And this is one of the things, and maybe it, it's just, you know, throwing you know darts at a board and trying to come up with an, a reason why you know a lot was made about the baseball and the way that the seams were not raised as much as they had been in the past for a guy who relies on his slider and, and getting that movement on the ball is it possible that the new ball really affected him more so than other pitchers that maybe don't rely on, on that break as much as he did could be. I mean, I think single ball pitches probably got hurt also, right? If you don't have that drag um, that they were saying basically there was less drag on the baseball, you don't have anything to grab onto the ball and help it sink, whether it's a two-seam fastball, change-up. Uh, the breaking ball, it all depends on the grip, and sometimes it's just the guy's hands, right? I mean, you can have two guys that throw a quote-unquote slider, but they probably don't throw it the same way, and so the baseball could affect that guy one way more than another. Um, but definitely something was going on, and you heard a lot of complaints about the balls feeling harder, feeling more slippery, um, which is a problem. And then it gets in your head, man. And you go to a new team, I mean, I think one thing, you know, folks probably don't think about too much, man. I did it a lot, bouncing around like crazy. But every time you go to a new team, you want to make such an impression on that team, especially when you get to do it in a big market and one that expects to win. Like, you want to prove you belong. You want to prove it to your fans. You want to prove it to your teammates, your coaches, your front office. And things get off to a bad start or a couple of games go bad early on, man. It can be just a runaway train 
that you can't stop. And it felt like that was a little bit of the case last year with Diaz. I don't know if the ball in particular uh, bothered him. And you know, based on what we've heard about the findings, I don't know if we're going to see any changes or anything significant. Um, we'll find out. I'm going to find out soon enough in spring training and see what's going on with him. Um, but I hope not. But if it is, you got to adjust, right? If there's like, right. yeah, these balls are just a little bit different, then perhaps it's an adjustment uh, on that pitch. And those are the conversations you have with your coaches. And, and hopefully they get to the bottom of it before opening day. You mentioned Betances before, and he's been rumored to be interested in a one-year deal. Would it surprise you if he doesn't return to the Yankees, especially with the rumor that they're interested in adding a bullpen arm like Josh Hader? Uh, it would um, would not surprise me. So I think that even though he's a New York guy and it's been incredible to watch to see what he's done in that uniform, he probably would be better off going somewhere else, uh, in my opinion. A couple of reasons. One, just you know, a little bit of um, maybe less expectations, although he very well could go to a big-time contender that's asking for a lot, like the Dodgers. Um, and others, the Angels would be a really good probably fit for him. But I think that as deep as that Yankee bullpen is, I mean, you know how quickly those guys can end up losing their role. I mean, we saw Luis Rubino in the postseason, right? I mean, this has happened before. As good as he was, as soon as it went a little bit south, they had to move to somebody else because it just it wasn't working out. So if you're trying to, if you're going to sign the one-year deal and you're going to do the bounce back and reestablish value, I'd, I'd go do it somewhere else. I'd probably go do it in the National League if I was him too. Um, go to a place, and assuming he has multiple opportunities, it'd be fun to check out for a year, get it back together. Uh, you could end up going to a team that doesn't contend to get traded at the deadline. That'll be fun. Um, and then go ahead if you want to sign with the Yankees next offseason. I'd do it that way. I think one of the places that might be a, a very um, nice landing spot for him are the Phillies. And the Qu- Phillies have quietly upgraded their team. Add Joe Girardi as their manager. They get that front-line starter and, and take away from a division rival in Zach Wheeler. They signed D.D. Gregorius, which fills one of their holes in the infield. Add that to what they did last year with Harper and J.T. Real Muto and Segura. The big question for me, I guess, is does Arietta back uh, rebound, and can they compete with the back end of the rotation of, of Velasquez and Eflin, with both had like mid to four, mid four ERAs? Is that can they compete with those two as their back end? They can at the bullpen, Steve off, right? And that was the same basically question we asked last year about that. Yes, right? it was who was kind of going to emerge at the at the bottom of the rotation? And we saw not the you know not the best version of Aaron Nola. Uh, either and no doubt that you know he'll be good again. It's, he seems like a guy that um, is well on his way to kind of and he's established himself, but really kind of taking it to a next level. A little stumble for him um, last year, so they can hang in there. Uh, there's good rotations. I mean, you mentioned the Mets; they're really good. Um, the Atlanta Braves, the Washington Nationals. So you know, they if we were to sit there and, and rank the rotations, they may end up finishing fourth of that group. Doesn't mean they can't win a division though either. I mean, that's, that's one of the things that the game has shown us, even though. We saw a lot of good starting pitchers make a big difference this last postseason. We also know you can do it other ways. And and one of those ways is if you're a little bit weak at the bottom, maybe you either employ or deploy the opener, um, which I think, you know, for me, I was a little iffy on the beginning, but I've seen how it's worked, and I've seen how it's worked well. If you've got the right arms to be able to do it and handle it. So that's one way you can fill a rotation spot if it's not going well. Or you just cover starters that can't go that deep with a really good bullpen. Um, which is tough to do you know, over the long haul. Um, but with the extra man, 26-man roster, that helps a little bit uh, if you have the pieces to do it. So if they don't add anything else in that rotation and they go with those guys at the bottom, um, they'll, I mean, they're going to be good, there's no doubt. But they'll have a chance to, to win and pitch well uh, if they have the bullpen arms behind those guys. Staying within that division, to me, which is, for me, no doubt, it's the most interesting division in baseball. Washington Nationals, if you're the GM of the Nationals, would you have put the priority on re-signing Strasburg or Rendon? And again, you, you, you set that up earlier, talking about the big contracts for pitchers and how they've led to rings. 
but that guy was all world, and I, I don't know how you let him walk. Uh, me, I might have prioritized him. Which would you have done? Yeah, it's interesting, right, because they basically signed the same contract. And so you sit there and say, were they in that spot to say, do we offer the 245 to Steven Strasburg or do we offer it to Anthony Rendon? Which one do we have? Which position do we have a better chance at, at filling? There's some good third-base options out there, whether it's you know free agency like Josh Donaldson or via trade. There's a couple of good starters, but they weren't going to be on the Garrett Cole market. And, you know, Max Scherzer, we're talking about, you know, contracts that have worked out well. It's been great, but he's showed some – some fatigue a little bit there. I mean, this guy goes hard all the time, and we saw it in the postseason, and he was good. Um, but you just start to wonder, man, is he really going to be able to grind it out these last two years of his contract, and do they need to have a little bit more protection in there? So it's tough because of the year that Strasburg came off of. And also, it feels like, and this is strictly a guess, but it feels like Anthony Rendon was a little bit more interested um, in what the entire market had to offer. I think Steven Strasburg was a little bit more interested in getting the best deal he could get to go back to the Washington Nationals. Now, he had great leverage. Obviously, the Yankees met with him, and other teams certainly would have been interested. And a lot of us thought, you know, would the Padres get in? Does he want to go home um, to San Diego? But he's already moved to San Luis to D.C., so I think he really wanted to be there. And not that Rendon wouldn't have gone back, um, but I think it's one of those things when you start to have those conversations and try to prioritize, okay, which one do we want? Well, let's find out who really wants to come here, too. I mean, that, that's important. Not that Anthony Rendon wouldn't have wanted to go back. I think Steven Strasburg probably wanted it a little bit more, and it's a winning formula, and they'll try to plug somebody else in at third base and go with that really good rotation at the top. So one of the most interesting stories to come out of the winter meetings was the MLB proposing that it might cut ties with 42 minor league teams after the 2020 season and the PBA expires. What do you make of the public and kind of contentious way that this uh, back and forth has gone between minor and major league baseball? Yes, it's tough. I mean, obviously, it is starting to get pretty heated right now, and I, I get caught in the middle because there's a part of me that can appreciate um, you know, where they are from a business standpoint. Right, The minor leagues used to be much bigger uh, years ago, go back to the 60s and how deep the minor league system ran. And you know, over time, it got a little bit more efficient and got smaller, and now it seems like Major League Baseball is interested in doing that again. Um, you know, you'd hate to see anybody, uh, any city, especially some of these smaller cities, because they're talking about rookie leagues and short season leagues, um, that would be potentially losing teams. But at the same time, you know, when I got drafted, there was no limit on the draft. Well, we all know Mike Piazza's story and others that got drafted in the 50th and 60th round and late and ended up becoming big leaguers. Then they capped the draft at 50 rounds. Now it's down to 40, right? And so it keeps getting smaller and smaller. And, you know, the idea of being a little bit more efficient but also upgrading what you're doing, I, I kind of like that for the player experience. You know, your odds of making it to the big leagues are really small, um, even once you become a professional. Um, which is tough, and then the idea of sticking and, and making life-changing money gets even smaller then. Uh, and so just is there a better way to do it? You know, that year that I finished up with the Mets in, in 2012, I think is a good example of why there might be some animosity, right? We see these teams changing all the time. The Mets were in Buffalo that year in AAA, and I remember I finished the year out there, and Sandy Alderson had come up to talk to the ownership group and the general manager in Buffalo because they wanted to make sure they could get that at least signed and so they could go back to Buffalo, and it seemed like, the, you know, the Bison just weren't interested. They, they wanted to move on to another organization. And so you can only go to one of the 30 affiliates. And the Mets got stuck and they had to go to Las Vegas. And so now you have a triple A team in Las Vegas when you're in New York. Like that shouldn't happen. Like that, that's a problem that makes it difficult for a lot of different reasons. And so there's, there's kind of two sides to it where, you know, there's a little bit of power there for some of these minor league organizations and they'll wield it and they'll put some teams in some really tough spots, which, which is not ideal. I think Major League Baseball is kind of dealing with that power struggle right now. 
I don't know. I, I, the idea of you know, say, take a team away from you know Butte, Montana, in a, in a short season league, and what that does to you know Major League Baseball's marketability in smaller cities. That's a problem too. I mean, you want those things. But even if you go to you know like the whole conversation about the Dream League and the idea that well, it's still a baseball, it just won't be affiliated, but it'll be we'll call it the Dream League, and there'll be a partnership there with Major League Baseball and um, and Minor League Baseball. But you know, there's something about being in a city where you have an affiliated team, right? Where you say, hey, even though it's in Butte, Montana, say, well, yeah, we're, we're affiliated to the Reds. Like, we got Reds players here, even though most of them are never going to make it. I think there's a draw there um, that you would lose if you ended up going to that Dream League. So I, I get both sides of it. Um, I'd like to see it get worked out. You don't want to see teams go away, but at the same time, I'd love to see the minor league situation, uh, facilities, everything else get better, including pay. And the pay is on the team. That's not on the minor league organization. That's on the big league teams to pay their guys more. Yeah, I agree. I, I think minor league baseball is, is essential to a lot of towns and, and the economy there and the jobs, and also for the love of baseball. That's where the right. kids you know, are able to go and see it and, and develop the love for the game. All right, before we let you go, CJ, not even Christmas yet, but looking forward to the 2020 baseball season. Give me the five top storylines you're most interested in seeing play oh, out this season. My top five without warning. That seems kind of fair. <laughs> yeah. All right, um, well, I mean, obviously, listen, Garrett Cole putting on the Yankee pinstripes. Uh, certainly going to be a lot of fun to watch. The discipline, um, whatever comes down here for the Houston Astros, is going to be a really big story, and what that does um, to the game. I think they really need to make their mark and and make it be known. AJ Hinch at the winter meetings um, seemed pretty contrite, and I think that he knows that a big punishment um, could be coming. Uh, I'm at the Angels with the money that they spent, and then also having the best player in the game in Mike Trout. Can they become a contender? They've never won a postseason game uh, with Mike Trout and having the best player. Um, in the league. I think that will certainly be uh, a pretty interesting one. I think the rest of this offseason, will the Dodgers spend? There's not guys that even spend necessarily that huge money on anymore. And it's been interesting to see, um, you know, the way that they've gone about it. They've been consistent. You know, I said if you had a choice over the last decade, right, in the 2010s, if you could have been a Dodger fan with World Series appearances and a bunch of division titles or a Kansas City Royals fan, so which fan is happier? The one that has the one ring and really hasn't been good. They went to one World Series, one another, but then it, you know pretty much went back to how they used to be. Or do you want to be a consistent winner with no rings? And I think the Royals fans would say, yeah, we're pretty happy. We'd rather be a Royals fan right now um, than a Dodger fan, at least over those 10 years, which kind of fascinates me, um, you know, just as far as the way that the whole thing uh, went down. And I think the managers, you know, the managers and the way things have gone and watching you guys like, Carlos Beltran, I know a lot of people don't know who Jace Tingler was, but he was a coach with the Rangers, so I was super excited to see him uh, get that opportunity. The, the, right now, going into 2020, the average tenure of a major league manager is 2.4 years. Wow. I mean, it is, the amount of turnover that we have had over these last couple of years has just been absolutely amazing. That number will go up, but the average for these guys holding a job, we had eight openings, so that brings the number way down. But 2.4 years, I mean, that's just incredible to me. So watching these managers, a lot of young guys, uh, some inexperienced, getting their first uh, opportunities, I think uh, always worth watching as well. See, you always know your guest. I knew I could give you that question, and you nailed five without, <laughs> without even breaking a sweat, CJ. CJ, thanks so much for your time tonight. We look forward to touching base with you during the season and seeing you out at the stadiums. And to hear right, you tomorrow great, morning, whatever, on MLB Network hey, with Steve Phillips. Absolutely. Be good, CJ. Have a great holiday. Thanks, guys. You too. You got CJ Nitkowski.